Turn to Romans chapter 7. We'll continue there. We're in the midst of a study of Romans. We are in chapter 7, which for many is a controversial passage and trying to figure out who Paul is talking about, but to me it seems pretty clear, and uh, that's the way I'll present it. I'm going to read this morning from verses 7 to 25, and this is a continuation. The title is Killing Self-Righteousness, Part 2. We see that the law kills self-righteousness in the unbeliever. We saw that last week uh, as we looked at verses 7 through, 12, through 13, and 13 being kind of the bridge in this section, um, and then killing self-righteousness in the believer um, in 14 to 25. But um, I'm going to read from verse 7 through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Our current question. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through, that, through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I, I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, that I myself, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thus far, God's word. Let's read together. I mean, pray together. Lord, help us to uh, understand your word, to love your word, 
to love you and delight in you through your word, to grow in grace, Lord. Help me to preach your word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to hear it in the power of the Spirit. And do your work that only you can do in our hearts as we spend time in your word. Bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. We trust you for it, knowing it's your will, asking it in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May 8th, 1945, World War II in Europe ends. And we call it VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And then later, September the 2nd, 1945, the end of the war with Japan. We call that VJ Day. World War II is over. Huge celebrations all around. But all wars did not end. Many lesser skirmishes have happened since then and are going on today. And we, as believers, still await the end of the biggest war for us. War with sin. See, sin was defeated at the cross, but the rebel powers are still fighting, refusing to surrender to their inevitable fate. But the day is coming. It is coming when the Lord will return and end the fight. There will be a full and final end of sin's rebellion against God. His kingdom, which has been inaugurated, will be consummated and abide forever. And then we will enjoy our VS day for an eternity. Victory over sin. We enjoy it now through the gospel, but then in all experience, there'll be no more rebellion outside of us or inside of us. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, a new body, pure joy, no more sin, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. Well, we're in Romans 7. As we look toward that day, there's a reality check for us here in this chapter. But so far, Paul has shown us that we're all sinful and need a Savior. He's shown us that that Savior is Jesus Christ and we get salvation, reconciliation with God through faith in Him and Him alone. And he began in chapter 6 giving us a theology of sanctification of growth and grace, having come to faith and been declared righteous by God and accepted in Jesus Christ, He begins to sanctify us or grow us in grace, transform us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we had a theology of sanctification up through verse 11 of chapter 6, which ended with, you must consider yourselves, therefore, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then we got this command, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. And then he talked about being slaves to righteousness. We're formerly slaves to sin. Now he's made us slaves to righteousness. And then in chapter 7, remember we said he went back to chapter 6 verse 14 and began to expand on what it means that we're not under law but under grace and showed that we had died to the law in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 7, died to its condemning power. We've seen ourselves in the mirror of the law. We've seen our sin and what it deserves, God's condemnation. We have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has taken our guilt and penalty for us so that the law no longer has convicting, uh, condemning power over us. We're not under the law as a covenant of works to make ourselves right with God. That's what it means when he says we've died to the law. And then he asks these questions. What, will we sh- what shall we say then? Since we've died to it, is the law sin? Well, absolutely not. And I'll revert you back to the last sermon in Romans and let you listen to how we brought uh, 7 to 13 to bear, showing that Paul was talking about his pre-Christian experience with the law and the role of the law in the life of the unbeliever, what it does. And then today we'll pick up in verse 14 and see our relationship to the law as a believer. Killing Self-Righteousness, part two. In this passage, we see the continued war with sin in the life of the believer. And I want to show you something before we dig into this passage because um, wrestled, 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 wrestled with this passage and how to break it up and what to preach and how to go forward. And then it just, the structure of the passage came clear to me. And when the structure became clear to me, I realized I don't have to preach three sermons and have them all be the same sermon if I just walk down through the text. But I can preach one sermon and bring all this together. So I've got a picture for the structure of this text. There you go. So if you'll look at your Bible, you're going to see a pattern as we look at verses 14 to 25. You'll see in verse 14, 15, 16, and 17 this pattern. You're looking in the ESV. The ESV is showing you what's going on in the original language. You're going to see it begin with four, four, H verse, four, four, now, so. And then you're going to get to verse 18 and you're going to see it go back to four, four, now, so. And then you're going to get to 22 and you'll see kind of the four and now together with a parenthetical statement in Paul's cry and then the so in verse 25. And so what you can see in this passage is that it it is, is, is cyclical and it's expanding every time it circles around. So what he tells us in verses 14 through 17 He expands on and gives clarity on as he goes forward. So if you look at your Bibles, and and I can give you this if you want to see it, but if you what made it come clear to me, and I know y'all can't see this, but this little piece of paper with all these colors on it was I actually put verse 14 to 17 here, verse verses 18 to 21 here, and 22 to 25 here. And it became crystal clear, the structure of the text. Three columns. If you look in verse 15, you'll see Paul say he doesn't do what he wants. 
If you look in verse 19, you'll see Paul say he doesn't do what he wants. Right? Same thing. And over, over on in the right column. If you look in verse 16, you'll see he doesn't do what he wants. And you look in verse 20. Now, I don't, if I don't do what I want. You see this repetition? Right? And you'll see it in verse 14, 18, and 22. We'll walk through it. But he, he, it's kind of like on, the, on this side, you get kind of a kernel. And then as it cycles around, you get a little more expansion. And it cycles around and you get a little more expansion. So I'm sure you don't want me to preach three sermons that sound alike. And I'm sure you don't want me to be here three hours trying to preach one sermon. So we're going to try to walk through this. This will give you enough to understand the passage. It will show you the structure of the passage. If you want that picture, you want some of it, whatever you want, whatever you need, let me know. But it'll, it'll help us see, I think, what Paul is doing here and see how he's opening up what he's saying so that it becomes clear that, that he's talking about his current struggle and in him the current struggle of the believer in Christ, living in between the ages, in the already and not yet, right? We've been justified, but not glorified. We're being sanctified. God's kingdom has come in Christ and been consummated, I mean, inaugurated, but it's not been consummated. So the full victory has not come either in our lives or in the world, but it will, and it is. So Paul here will show us through this repetition and expansion this is our main point that we're going to see. Though the battle with sin will remain in the life of the believer, the victory is sure in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is kind of work through these first two columns and then go back and, and highlight the stuff that's going on in the third column and hopefully bring all this together for you so that you can see that that's really kind of the main point that Paul's helping us see. What is our relationship to the law as a believer? What is our situation in Christ living in this fallen world as people who are justified, who have been brought to God, but who are being grown in grace? The work's not finished yet. What should we expect? And then when we get over into chapter 8, we'll talk about life in the Spirit and how the Spirit sort of breaks the tie between the redeemed spirit and me and the flesh and that war that's going on so that I actually can walk in that newness of life that Christ has purchased for me. So my first point from verses 14 and 18 is the believer's knowledge of self. And before I do that, I just want to stop and say, what is a believer? If I'm going to talk about believers, I need to tell you what believers are, right? Because I dare not assume you know. What do I mean when I say a believer? When I say a believer, I'm saying a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. One who not just mentally assents. See, it's not where we just know that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the grave. I mean, the devil knows that. Right? We, we, we do know that. The gospel tells us that, and we believe that knowledge. But then the, the, the step that makes a believer is we believe that so that we repent. We're grieved over our sin. We repent and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the grave the third day. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, the Scripture says. So a believer is one who has heard the gospel, heeds the gospel, and turns and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. So are you a believer this morning? Do you have faith that Christ lived for you? 
Why did he come and live? He lived under his own law. He fulfilled the law in thought, word, and deed, providing a perfect righteousness for his people that is imputed to us through faith. And then he died on that cross. Why would the Son of God go to that cruel cross and die? Because he took our condemnation. He was the Lamb of God pictured in the Old Testament. He took the condemnation we deserve, and he was God and man, so on that cross he could drink that cup dry in those few hours and say, it is finished before he left. And it's proved true by his resurrection. So I ask you again, are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what a believer is. And Paul here is using himself as an example. Let's read these two verses we're going to look at. Verse, verse 14, and you can see the parallel nature of them. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, if you stop right there and don't look at the context, you look at that verse and you say, how in the world could that be talking about a Christian? What do you mean? You're of the flesh, sold under sin. Well, look at the parallel over in verse 18. For I know, see the believer knows some things. We know, he said in verse 14. Now, I know that nothing good dwells in me, period. That's all he said. Right? No, he gives us a little more information, doesn't he? I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I have the desire. You're going to see he delights in the law of God. He loves God. He loves his law. He wants to keep it. But his flesh weakens that law of sin. Chapter 8. He says, Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to keep it, the law, but I don't find the ability to carry it out. Paul is using himself as an example of a believer when he says that. Let me give you seven reasons, and I'll, I'll give you an article that you can go read if you want to read more on this, of why Paul is sharing his experience as a believer. Seven reasons. And I highlighted one of them last time. There's a sudden shift to the present tense in verse 14 that carries through the rest of the passage. We go from the past tense in the verbs to the present tense in verse 14. He's speaking of what he was at that moment, right? So there's a sudden shift to the present tense. Number two, this person, whoever he is, hates sin and delights in the law. That is not speaking of an unbeliever. I was one. I know what we're like when we don't believe in Christ. And I love sin. Right? The religious hypocrite loves self. Jesus said they look good on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all corruption. This person truly hates sin and delights in the law. That's the second reason he's talking about a believer. And we'll see these things come out as we go through the text. Number three, this text is inconsistent with Paul's previous life. He didn't struggle. He wasn't frustrated. He was proud. He was trying to stomp out the church. He saw himself as blameless and on top of the heap of blameless. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As an unbeliever, he wasn't. In this battle with the flesh, he didn't think. Number four, 
This war reflected in Romans 17 through uh, 14 through 25 is identical to the war reflected in Galatians 5. And everybody knows that's a believer in Galatians. I hope you're taking notes because, of course, I will give you these notes if you want them. But remember, I told you all the elect take notes. Number five, Paul cries out for deliverance from the flesh. Number six, Paul's conclusion in verse 25, and we'll see it. Paul's conclusion in verse 25 reflects the expectation of ongoing war in this life, meaning he will have to wait for the full deliverance he cries out for in verse 24. And number seven, if Paul did not deal with the believer's relationship to the law in this segment, there would be a huge gaping hole in his argument in this book. If you want to read more, there's an article. It's not very long, but it's very helpful by J.I. Packer, The Wretched Man Revisited. And he takes another look at this text and some of these things he points out in there, taking the position as well as with Augustine and all, uh, most of the reformers and down through the ages, that this text is talking about our struggle in this life with the world, the flesh, the devil, with sin. But those are seven reasons why I just wanted to highlight um, that this is about an, a believer. Verse 14. I mean, verse 18. Look back there. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. You remember we've talked about flesh. He expands on it. It says sin is dwelling in him, in his flesh. We've talked about the flesh in, when we looked at chapter 6, verse 12. We talked about that a bit then when he talks about his, our mortal bodies. And in 13, our members. And remember we said that our redeemed spirits dwell, still dwell in unredeemed bodies. And the flesh is the place where sin remains and resides. It's not the old dualism of matter is evil and spirit is good. It's not that. But the, 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 the unredeemed body in which we live as new creatures, new uh, renewed spirits, our minds, what Paul says. There's a conflict there because there's a, there's a redeemed new, new creation, new us, spirit, new mind there that still lives in the unredeemed body for which we hope and which we will have. But the body is the place where un indwelling sin remains. We'll see that as we go through. Conflict between Paul's born-again spirit and his yet-to-be-transformed body is what he's describing. Our mortal bodies remain dying, sinful bodies that seek to pull us down. And in this life, we'll be at war with the world the flesh and the devil. I'll let you go back and listen to the sermon on, on 6.12. I just did one sermon on that, on that verse. But look, like, look back at verse 18. He says, I, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For Watch this. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability. And this, this is one of the keys that kind of unlocks this passage for you if you embrace it. Paul said, when Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right, what did he mean? I'll tell you what he means. He means what he expected. He expected as a believer to be able to fully keep God's law. 
So when he says he couldn't do what he wanted to do, he's not saying, gosh, my life is just as bad as it possibly could be. I can't do anything right. I'm sinning all over the place. And if you look at me, you'd see it. What he's grieved over is the fact that he still can't perfectly keep the law. He doesn't find the ability in himself to carry out his desire for perfect obedience. He still falls short. Which takes us to the believer's knowledge of sin, point two. Look in 15, verse 15. I'll read 15 to 17 and then 19 to 21. You'll see how he expands a little in 19:21 And moving forward toward that right column. Verse 15 in chapter 7, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 19, For I do not do the good I want. You see the repetition with 15. But the evil which I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, 20 and 16, see that matching up? It is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He really, really wants to keep the law in perfection. But he constantly falls short. Anybody relate to that? Has God saved you such that you now delight in His commandments? You delight in His Word. You want to be like Jesus. You want to keep His commandments. But if you're honest, you have to confess on a daily basis that you've sinned in thought, word, and deed. Because we haven't always thought the right thing and never thought the wrong thing during that day or that hour or that minute, right? We haven't always said the right thing and never said the wrong thing. We haven't always done the right thing and never done the wrong thing. So even as believers, we need 1 John 1, 9. And we need that to be a continual practice. Because Paul expresses some confusion here. He said, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. Remember, what he wants is perfect obedience. But the evil I do not, I don't want to fall short. I don't want to slip in sin. But I find that in my flesh, in my members, there's still indwelling sin that is taking me to the place I don't want to go. The evil, 15 and 19, the evil, right? He didn't want to do. Look at this. This person hates sin. You see it? He hates sin. He's not making excuses for his sin. He's not justifying his sin in any way. He hates it. He wants to be free of it. But he's real about it. And he knows that he's not glorified yet. Paul agrees with the law, but he does not keep it perfectly. See that in 16 and in 20. But he identifies the enemy as well. And we saw that. He said, no, it's sin that... Look at this. Indwelling sin is not just something a theologian made up. It's actually the words in the text. The culprit is sin that still dwells in my flesh, within me. 
That's why I keep falling short. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He said in 21, I find to be a law, I find this to be true, that when I want to do right, remember, I want to perfectly do God's law. Evil lies close at hand. He wants to keep God's law. He's frustrated he can't. He, re- he realizes the reason is remaining in dwelling sin. He has been justified. Remember? Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an act of God wherein He pardons all of our sin and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. What do you mean? When you trust in Jesus, God forgives you of all of your sin takes away your, your filthy, sinful garments, metaphorically speaking, and clothes you in Christ's righteousness and adopts you into His family. Paul has been justified. He is being sanctified. But boy, is he realizing he's not glorified yet. Husbands, if you want to know if you're glorified yet, ask your wife. <laughs> Wives, if you want to know if you're glorified yet, ask your husband. Or both of you, ask your children. And children, you want to know if you're glorified yet? Ask your parents. I'm not letting anybody off the hook this morning. We all need a Savior. But even after coming to that Savior, there's still this wrestling match with sin. He recognizes that sin, indwelling sin is the culprit, that he's going to be in a fight here. He's clearer, he's clearer than ever before in his mind and in his teaching that it is not the law that sanctifies us. It's the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about Spirit-filled life if you're yearning for that in chapter 8 when we get there. Law still identifies and still condemns sin in the life of the believer, but it can't condemn us, right? It points us to Christ for renewed cleansing and forgiveness. We are not victims of remaining sin. Remember what we've already seen in chapter 6. We're raised to new life. We're dead to sin's reign. We're renewed and enabled. But watch. We've been renewed and enabled to grow more and more in our repentance and faith. We weren't justified and then glorified so that we were perfectly enabled and then we keep all God's. We grow in grace. And we should be frustrated by our growth. I've said this before, but all of you probably haven't heard it. John Piper was asked one time what frustrates him most about the Christian life. You know what he said? The exceeding slowness of my sanctification. Because it seems like a trap. The more you grow, the more you see your sin, the more sinful you think you are. That's why you better be dwelling at the foot of the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ and remembering the gospel every day. If you're proud of your progress in Christ, that's a problem. Some of you are. At least you act like you are. We need to be pressing into grace, pressing into growth, being merciful, yes, with ourselves and merciful with others patient and long-suffering with others because we're all in the midst of this war together. We're the only army military force on the planet that mostly shoots its own. This is a reality in our lives. 
if we're thinking right, we see the goal, the law that we want to keep, the commandments that we want to keep. We want to be like Jesus. But if we're real, we will confess, just like Paul did, that sin still dwells in my flesh. I want to be a perfect Christian, but I am not because I still have that battle, that fight in me. And sometimes we, we fail and we fall and we resist confessing it, don't we? We resist confessing it to God for some unknown reason. But we surely resist confessing it to one another, don't we? And that gets really stinky in a marriage. For some reason, we, we hype it up. We should be the most intimate with the person we're married to, not the most mean to them. Paul says, I don't get this. I don't understand. I thought it would be different. And I tell you, I thought it would be different. I thought I would come to Christ and all my problems would be over. Boy, was that a shock. Seemed like things got worse for a while. Paul's like, I don't get it, but I know what's going on. Sin that indwells me. Sin that lies right there close to me. We pursue growth, but not perfection. We know perfection will come when we're glorified. When we die, our spirits will be perfected and go to be with Christ, but we'll still be waiting for that new body until Christ returns and we return with Him and we get our new bodies. Number three, the believer's conclusion of ongoing war. What I mean by that, realization that this life will be a life of war. Now we'll look at the end part of this text, the third column. Look at verse 22. For I delight in the law in my inner being. Remember, he sees this conflict between this redeemed spirit and this unredeemed body, this flesh where sin dwells and this new heart that wants to obey God. He says, in, in the real me, in my mind, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see in my members another law. Look at this. Why did I use war? waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin or the rule of sin or the principle of sin that dwells in my members. Skip down to verse 25b. So then I myself, watch this. This is his conclusion. Remember that, although we're going to use his cry as the last. This is the conclusion of the chapter. This is the present tense verb, right? This is what's true, continual. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He currently lives a life of delight in God. And if we're Christ, we should currently live a life of delight in God. Delighting in His grace, delighting in His commandments, His word, in our inner being, in our renewed spirits. The real us is a new creation that inhabits these unredeemed bodies. Redeemed spirits living in dying bodies that are a dwelling place for remaining sin. But God promises to strengthen us and grow us in grace. It's not a defeatist theology. It's a real theology. You're going to sin, right? I don't want you to go home and think, well, oh, I come to Jesus. I'll never sin again. Oops. Must not know Jesus. No, Paul's saying, you know, we need to be real about whether or not we love God and His law and all. But this is going to be our fight in this life. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You see the two selves there. Just a different way of saying it. 
But verse 23, we are at war. We delight in God, we delight in His commandments, but we are at war with indwelling sin that frustrates our desire to perfectly obey. Though, listen, that should be our aim. We're aiming at the target, just like Paul. We love God. We love His law. We don't want to sin. We don't want to covet. We don't want to steal or murder or commit adultery or lie or blaspheme God or have an idol. We, we, so we're aiming at the target. But even the best archer. Have you ever shot a bow and arrow? If you're new to it, make sure nobody else is around. Um, but behind you, right? But if you shoot, you got the target out in front of you. How many times do you exactly hit the bullseye? Well, I don't know if I ever have. But even the best archers don't always split the arrow, right? They're not always hitting the direct target. We aim at it. Or guys, you play baseball? The best hitters fail 70% of the time. Right? If you bat 300, you're doing really good. So our aim is to hit the ball. Our aim is to hit the target. Our aim is to keep the law. But we need to realize there's a war against that. Some, a lot of it is outside of us coming at us, but some of it is in here. Indwelling sin. We're at war. It frustrates our attempt to be perfect. This is the real Christian life. Verse 25, his conclusion. I myself, there's an emphatic stress there that's in the text. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I want to love God. I want to honor God. I want to glorify God. And I want to do that perfectly. I'm a Christian. That's my heart. That is not the heart of an unbeliever. It is not. Suppressing the truth. Enemies of God. You know how Scripture describes us. Dead in trespasses and sins when we're an unbeliever. That's not the heart of an unbeliever. With my mind I serve God and His law. And literally there's here on the one hand and on the other. On the one hand, I myself with my mind serve the law of God. Present tense, active, meaning going on. Continually and simultaneously, the inner me serves God, but look, he's real. The outer me, the flesh, serves sin. There's war. I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. War in the life of the believer. And it might seem tied, doesn't it? You've got a redeemed spirit. You're renewed. Your mind is renewed. You have a new heart. You're a new creation. But you're living in this flesh where sin remains. And it kind of seems like a tie. Nothing's ever going to get done, right? Well, there's a such third person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference. And we're going to talk about that in chapter 8. God empowers us and helps us to do what He's called us to do and what He says is true of us. But it requires us to fight in faith. Growth is assured. We need to be real that we're on a battlefield so that we go on to that battlefield expecting warfare. We need to get up every morning expecting warfare. In this world, you will have it easy. So don't worry about it. I'll be with you and give you everything you want. If you believe that, go listen to our series on Ecclesiastes. That will fix that for you. In this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome it for you. 
We need to get up with a warfare mindset. Today there's going to be a battle with sin. Every day? Yes, every day. Do you still live in an unredeemed body? Do you still have indwelling sin? you think it ever going to give up? But we have everything necessary for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. But God doesn't do it automatically. Why do you think I'm pressing you to be in the Word? Spend time with God. Remember who Christ is and what the gospel is and who you are in Him. Yes, every day, ideally in the morning, so that you go into that day with the gospel glasses on and not the me glasses on expecting everything to go smoothly for you, and you're ready for a fight. Guys in the Marine Corps, did they train you in boot camp to hit the battlefield in Bermuda shorts? We want to live on vacation, don't we? But I'm sorry, that's not the real world you live in. You're at war. Don't be surprised by it. I can't believe... Don't, I can't believe... Mm. Yeah, believe it. Expect it. This is a fallen world, and you live among fallen people who want you to justify them and live like them. You live in a fallen body that wants you to dishonor God and pursue sin, but you have everything necessary in Christ and in the means of grace to follow Christ and struggle and prevail in this war. We're going to talk more about that, but that's what Paul cries out for. This is a parenthetical statement in the text in verse 24 to 25a. It's like a little parenthesis. That's why I pulled it out and put it last. So we can see the progression in the text. We can see the warfare in the life of the believer, and we can have this heart cry. Look at the believer's cry in hope. Verse 24, wretched man, wretched person, wretched woman, that I am, not that I was, that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? The Holman Christian Standard Bible gets it pretty good. It says, who will rescue me from this dying body? And literally there, it, the, 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 the preposition is out of. Out of. Who will deliver me out of this dying body? Will somebody please take me out of this flesh, this unredeemed body, this old body, this place where sin remains? I want out. That's why Paul would say it's far better to go and be with Christ. I want out. Will anybody get me out? Who will deliver me out of this body of death? I long to be free from this war, from this fight, from this struggle with sin. I long for a new body. How about you? Do you long to be free of the fight? Do you long to be free of sin? Do you long to honor Christ and to be with Him and to never doubt Him or dishonor Him or fail to enjoy Him again? Do you, do you desire to never justify a single sin again? To never, to never try to tell God why it's okay that you the way you are? Paul says, Ugh! Who will deliver me out of this body of death? Our current condition is warfare. Torn. Torn by living in the already and the not yet must keep the gospel front and center so that we walk in hope and intentionality into the battle. 
expecting the guns to go off. But he asks a question, who will deliver me? And he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's hope in the Christian life. There's hope that God will deliver us. There's hope that it comes through. It doesn't come through Buddha, Confucius, myriad other false gods, but through Jesus Christ and Him alone. Why do you say that? Well, because Scripture says that. Christ said that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. But look at that text again. Thanks be to God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, His Son, by the Holy Spirit. When will we be delivered out of this body of death? Well, thankfully, we're going to see that too in Romans chapter 8, but I'll read it for you. Not only... Creation. See, he's talking about the, because since sin and sin has infected the creation and the creation groans under the burden of decay. And he says in verse 23 of chapter 8 of Romans, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. What do you mean, Paul? Thankful for apposition, a comma there, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for that. We don't have that yet. We don't have our new bodies yet. We've not been fully set free from indwelling sin yet. But God is using all of that struggle to mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. Talk more about that in chapter 8. We, eager, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Doesn't it? That seems like cross up. We groan, but we wait eagerly. We're ready to be delivered out of this body of death. And we know that it's coming. But the gospel is good and Christ is good and we trust Him knowing He's true. And we wait, therefore, eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Look at this in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Not on, now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for it, if we rightly hope for it, what we do not see, why? We, we hope in God's promise to bring it. We know He's true. He'll never fail us. He will bring it. Therefore, we wait with patience. Can you relate? I know we're, we're flying through, and I, and I did, but you see how I'm putting this together, and I think that's the real structure of the text, and it gives you ability uh, to go home and do some homework and dig in it and, and see it yourself. But do you see the reality of the war in the life of the believer? Listen, apart from Romans chapter 7, if we just talk and we're real with one another, we're going to be confessing the same thing, right? That we're not glorified yet, that we're in the midst of a battle, that we strive for Christ-likeness, but we fall short. Thankfully, he is, His throne is a throne of grace to which we can run and find forgiveness and mercy and help in our time of need. Really, we just need to live there, metaphorically speaking. But He will deliver us from this body of death. When He returns, all this rebellion is going to be over. If you pass away before He returns, the struggle's over for you. You go directly into His presence and wait for the redeemed body and the new heavens, new earth. 
Who will deliver me? Jesus will in his time when he returns. Our enemies will be totally vanquished on that day. Believer, victory over sin day is coming and it is sure. And in the meantime, God graciously works in us by His Spirit to assure both joy and growth in grace as we wait for that day. And we'll see that as we look at life in the Spirit and we move into chapter 8. But our main point, remember, though the battle with sin will remain in the life of the believer, the victory is sure in Jesus Christ, our Lord. To live is Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we talked about a lot in Ecclesiastes, help us to have a proper expectation of life in Christ. Help us to have a proper knowledge of where we live in a fallen world among fallen people. Help us to know who we are in Christ. We have been justified. We will be glorified. And we are currently being sanctified. In our hearts and minds, we love you and want to serve you, but we realize that there's a war going on because we still live in this body of death where remaining sin wars against us. Help us to keep short order, short lists on sin. Help us to quickly go to your throne of grace and confess and cry out to you on a daily basis and lean hard into the strength of the Spirit that we might walk out onto the battlefield that is this life and walk out in your resources, your armor, your provision, your truth, that we might walk by faith and not by sight and be light and salt in the midst of this dark world. But Lord, help us to be real about the battle. Thank you for the help we see in Romans chapter 7 that gives us the right description of what's going on, therefore the right expectations so that we won't trust in ourselves or lean upon ourselves, but we will lean hard upon you and depend upon your spirit that we might walk in your grace. Have mercy on us, Lord. Save us. And when I say that, I'm I'm crying out for more than justification. We know. Convert us, yes. Bring us to faith, yes. Justify us, yes. But sanctify us, And glorify us. We hope in you and we know that that is what you do in the Lord Jesus Christ. So be with us now as we transition to your supper. Help us as we have already done and as we're going through to examine ourselves, to look to you, to proclaim your death and our God-given faith in you and to be fortified and strengthened in that faith as we partake of your means of grace your supper. So bless us, Lord. We look to you and give you all the praise and thank you for saving wretches like us. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.